everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We are talking future of automation and manufacturing all this month long. And today we have Sean Dotson uh, coming on the show. Sean, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Vlad. Uh, really appreciate it. You know, I've been watching you guys for, for quite some time now, and uh, it's an honor to be invited on board. Appreciate that, Sean. Before we dive into what the automation industry looks like in 2023, could you give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a uh, mechanical engineer from uh, the University of Florida, Go Gators, even though we really stank this year in college football. Um, got out of school, uh, studied robotics, mechanical engineering, got out of school and uh, went to work for a packaging company for a short period of time and, and then found a, uh, a home at a custom automation company down here in Florida. It was called Adlin Automation. Um, kind of went up through the ranks as a project engineer and then eventually was, was running engineering and manufacturing. Throughout the years, we were bought by larger and larger corporations and we were finally owned by a, a multi-billion dollar European corporation um, who had too many facilities all over the world and decided in 2004 that um, you know, our facility drew a short straw and, and they decided to, to move our products all over the world. Um, and what was left was this robotics group that <clears throat> I had kind of come up through the ranks through. So um, I basically told them, you know, hey, why, why don't you sell it to, to myself and, and two of my uh, top engineers? So the three of us uh, started R&D in uh, on January 1st, 2005. And uh, as, the, as we went from the largest custom automation company in the Southeast to the smallest uh, pretty quickly. Um, and, um, throughout, uh, you know, from 2005 through 2010 grew you know, fairly steadily. Um, you know, after the recession in 08, there was a contraction in the industry and, uh, we were one of the lucky ones to be able to, to get through it and then just grew exponentially after, you know, 2010 when, when the economy took back off, mm -hmm. um, acquired a machine shop, uh, acquired a packaging company, uh, to add to what we were doing as, uh, a lot of medical device assembly and testing and validation. We started doing medical device packaging as well. Um, and then in late 2020, um, I sold the company to a private equity firm uh, out of New York. Um, stayed on as president of R&D and CTO of two of the other sister companies that they also held that were an industrial distributor and a uh, panel build shop um, out of uh, Wisconsin. Um, and then in October of last year, um, I decided that it was time to move on and do some, you know, bigger and different and better things. Uh, so um, taking some time off now um, and kind of exploring my options and figuring out what my next step wants to be. Um, I think I'm spending more time networking and talking on the phone now than I was ever before. But uh, it's it's been fun. I was telling Vlad before the uh, the podcast, it's a blessing and a curse to kind of be able to reinvent yourself um, at some point in your career because there's so many options of what I could possibly do or want to do. It's, it's, it's tough to narrow them down a little bit. So uh, that's a little bit of history of myself. Sean, I have many, many questions. I think, you know, we can take this conversation in many directions and I, I want to dig into, you know, how you grew the business and what that was like. And I'm sure that we'll give a lot of tips to the listeners on that side, but maybe Earlier in the career, you know, I'm curious, um, you know, on the mechanical background side, because I get this question, I want to say often for engineers looking to get into robotics or integration. And I know that both disciplines are equally as valuable. I have, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts about 
going into, let's say, electrical versus mechanical? Did you have to maybe learn or did you have a learning curve that was different than um, what you would expect on the electrical side? How was and what would you recommend ultimately for someone looking into integration and robotics in 23 to pursue uh, as a degree, perhaps, or as an education? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm going to be a little bit biased because I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, oh. You know, I, I, was, I was the kid that always took apart the alarm clock and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the old TV. And uh, my dad would come home you know, horrified that I was, you know, taking apart a TV with a big capacitor on the back of it and could have, you know, electrocuted myself and didn't know better. But, um, you know, I, I was an auto mechanic in, in college. Um, I've just always been more mechanically inclined. Um, you know, my, funny enough, my dad was an electrical engineer, so I kind of I picked up a little bit of the, the electrical side for, from him. Um, you know, I, I I had to take you know circuits class like like anybody else, just one circuits class. But um, you know, I've I've never I've been dangerous enough with with, with electronics, but I've never, never been that electrical guy. Um, now, you know, some people will put programming under the electrical side. Um, I've always kind of considered it to be almost a, a third class of, you know, you've got mechanical, electrical, and then controls, you know, programming. Um, what I have found is interesting is that I would say out of all the programmers I've met, I would say a majority, over 60%, 70% even, have been mechanical engineers by, by education. Um, and I, I find that, in, and, and honestly, some of the best that I've, I've met have been mechanical engineers. And I think, I think part of that is maybe they understand what they need to program. You're like, how, what is the mechanics? How does it need to move? How, do, how does it need to operate? Um, you know, not taking anything away from any programmers who are electrical engineers. There's amazing ones out there. But it's just, it's been interesting. And I've talked to a few other people and they've, they've seen, some, they've had similar, um, you know, uh, experiences with mechanical. Um, I think it's interesting is that uh, some colleges now are starting to offer more blended uh, degrees. So it's, it's uh, electromechanical degrees or, um, you know, automation, uh, you know, industrial automation sciences degrees, things like that, where both two-year and four-year degrees, where you get a mixture of, of both. Um, and that I think would be very powerful. You know, somebody who's just looking to get into the industry who hasn't even gone to school yet, or maybe going back to school, um, that I think could be, you know, a very powerful degree because, you know, as, as we all know, especially at small automation companies, you got to be a jack of all trades. Um, you know, I've done lots of robot programming over my, over my life, even though I'm a mechanical engineer, because I had to, um, you know, so um, I've, I've even done a little bit of electrical design when I'm not very proud of, but, uh, and, but it did catch on fire. So I think, you know, right. I, I succeeded at this point, right? Um, no, so, it's no. an interesting perspective. I, I certainly yeah. appreciate it. Like I said, I, I think engineers, uh, how to say, like ask that question a lot, right? And and for me, it's more like I wish I knew more mechanical aspects so that I could be a better, I guess, like programmer. And then for them, it's like, well, I wish I knew more programming so that I, I could be a better like automation sure. engineer. But I think there's certainly a balance to, to some extent, but it's a, it's an interesting uh, conversation point. Yeah. If I, there's if no I can, reason you can't. There's no reason you can't be, you know, learning other skills too. You know, like very early on, I, I took PLC programming classes just because I wanted to understand what the programmer was doing to my mechanical designs. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to know how it worked. I knew I was never really going to be a PLC programmer, but it's just, it's, it's, it's helpful uh, to be able to understand their constraints and what they can and can't do. Um, so, you know, while you're designing the entire system, you're not, you're not making it 
more difficult to program maybe than it needs to be. Right. Sean, if I can ask you maybe in the early years of uh, when you were just starting your company with uh, a few colleagues, you mentioned, uh, I believe you were three together, right? Uh, mm-hmm. What was yep. what was the experience like? You know, what were you, I mean, what were you concerned with? And ultimately, maybe what would you do differently if you were starting or recommending somebody to start a similar venture today? Well, I mean, you know, when, when we got started, we were, we were concerned about uh, putting food on the table. You know, uh, we, we took, I don't think we took a salary for six months or so, um, maybe even a little bit longer, um, just to, you know, to build up the company. So we all lived off our savings and, you know, scraped up some money and, and, and just as low cost as possible. You know, we contracted out the things that we couldn't do ourselves. Um, so we kept our, you know, our overhead pretty low. Um, we were always, you know, we were always conservative. Um, we wouldn't grow for the sake of growth, wouldn't spend money on things that we really didn't need to, but if it made economic sense, you know, we, we went out and bought a CNC fairly early on because we found that even though there were machine shops around us, there's just times that we needed to, to bust that apart immediately. We could not wait for, for the, you know, the machine shop two, three days to, to get that part. So, um, you know, I think being, being conservative was good. Um, it probably also, and I'll say not in the very, very beginning, but within the first five years or so, we were probably a little too conservative on the sales side. And this is something that I learned and, and probably would, you know, would definitely had to go back and do it over again. I would be a little bit more aggressive on the sales side, not only, um, I guess, expanding our sales presence. Um, so, you know, I initially, I did pretty much all the sales and then I brought on a salesperson and they were helping out. And, and throughout the years we had various salespeople and, and, and for different periods of time. Um, but I, I, pro- I never really wanted to, I was like, I don't want to go manage a sales guy out in California, you know, or, or, or a salesperson in, in, the, in the Midwest when we were a kind of Southeastern, you know, company. Um, but looking back on that, we could have gotten so much more work um, if I just had been a little bit more aggressive with that. And it, and it took probably until, you know, I don't know, probably the middle of, of, of owning R&D, you know, eight, nine years in to realize that, hey, you know, we could be doing a lot more if we really got a lot more aggressive. Um, so that, that, that's probably what I'd say is, is my advice to you know, people getting started is to not, don't skimp on, on sales because that's, that's the lifeblood of a company. That's what's bringing the work in. You, know? um, you can be the best engineer in the world. If you don't have projects to work on, though, then you know, what are you doing? Is there something that you would recommend, I guess, someone who's trying to scale and is unsure if they're ready to hire somebody on, on sales or maybe outsource part of uh, a sales team? What is it, um, what do they need to look for to know that, hey, maybe this is the right time for us to try and scale that? Because, and I guess I'm drawing from my conversations, at least, a lot of people are excellent executioners of technical projects, right? Like whatever that may be, that could be PLC projects, HMI, SCADA, all the way to MES or ERP systems. But I think yeah. a lot of those individuals also struggle with scaling and hiring that Salesforce, right? Like you mentioned. So what's what would you yeah. look for uh, for someone who's in that position? So, you know, I think if you're finding yourself, um, you know, as a leader of a company or owner of a company, spending more of your time doing the work than actually going out and, and finding the work. So you're working in the company more than you're working on the company. Um, that's a time where you probably need to start looking at hiring out some, some sales or, or finding some other avenue to generate those. Because if you're not, if you're not constantly filling that pipeline, 
um, you know, the work that you've got right now for the next three, six, nine months, whatever it is, we, what happens after that period of time's over. So um, it's, it's a full-time job. Um, and, and, and so many people, including myself, you know, made, made the mistake of, oh my gosh, we're, we've got so much work. We're fat and happy. We're working all this work. And then you neglect the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're starting, this project's starting to kind of ramp, ramp down and end. And you're like, oh, where's the next one? Now you're scrambling to go out and find, you know, more work. And as we all know, these projects, you know, the gestation period can be sometimes a year or more on some of these projects okay, I got three months of runway left in this project and I've got a year wait for the next project. Well, you're in trouble. So, um, you know, definitely get ahead of that curve. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to go spend the money on a salesperson. Um, yes, they're expensive. In fact, they probably should be the highest paid person at your company, you know, based on commissions and all, because without them, you have nothing coming in. Right. Um, now, that being said, the owner of the company probably is always going to be the best salesperson for the company. I mean, when you're the president, when you're the owner, the CEO, you know, um, you've got the most, you've got the most um, credence, you've got the most uh, presence, you know, in front of the customer. Um, but you can't be everywhere. And, and you've got to be working on other aspects of the company. So, um, you know, don't be afraid to go out and, 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 you know, take a flyer on somebody who, who, that you respect and that you think, you know, will, will help your company. Um, you'd be, you know, you'd be surprised. There's, there's a lot of really, really great salespeople out there. No, I, I certainly appreciate it. Like I said, I, I think a lot of us, including our listeners are, um, are interested in, again, how to sell, how to scale their company in sales, I think is an important part of that. As you said, mm-hmm. Dave, what are your, what are your thoughts? What are, maybe you have a question for Sean as well. I do. So I guess I've got lots of questions for Sean. Would love to get some of his perspective looking forward. But before we do that, I want to ask kind of one one last follow-up question on the if you were starting over, you you would be more aggressive uh kind of kind of comment, Sean. Um how I guess in, in your opinion, how can a group be aggressive, right? How can they go out and get in front of people and try to have all of these conversations? What's the balance between that and and coming off as being the group that is just too pushy? Right. Like, like I, I feel I feel like that, that that's always the fine line, right? Like, hey, I want to go pitch the product, but at, at some point, you know, I need to say if I continue to pitch and push hard, they may never want to talk to me again. So uh, yeah. w- w- what are you, what are your thoughts on, on what that line looks like? Yeah, it, um, it is a fine line. Um, you know, I, I have always been one that, um, you know, I will go after a customer and try to present to them um to give them reasons why they should be using us. And it usually has nothing to do with the technical solution. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it's got to do more with, you have a problem, let's identify the problem, um, which sometimes customers don't know what their problem is. They, they think they need automation. They think the problem is here, but in reality, it's actually upstream five steps. And if you solve that problem, then the one downstream really doesn't matter. Um, you know, sometimes they think they have a quality issue and really it's a labor issue or vice versa. So, you know, part of this, figure out what their problem is, then showing them how you can provide a solution. Um, because, you know, I don't, I never believed on selling on, on, on features and, and benefits and technology. That's important. 
I mean, you've got to show them that you are innovative. You've got to show them that you are competent, uh, technically competent, things like that. But, you know, let's, let's be honest. There's, there's, there's 100 companies out there that can program a robot, install it for you, right? But installing the right robot, installing, you know, building it the correct way, um, you know, putting it in the correct position and making the program as easy to use and all, those are all value adds that, that you need to sell on. Um, and I think if you do that, people don't find you as pushy necessarily. Um, they find you as wanting to provide a solution. Um, I've also always approached customers. Um, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to talk to a customer and I'm, I'm just not getting anywhere, not getting anywhere, not getting anywhere, I'll, I'll back off. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I, I joke with some of my sales guys. It's like, it's, it's like asking the girl to prom. If you ask her three times after the third time, you just kind of look kind of desperate at that point. Right. And maybe it's not the right fit, you know, yep. maybe, maybe she's, it's not the right time. Maybe she's not into you. Maybe, maybe there's lots of other things, but you know, maybe it's, it's time to move on. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's another customer who is looking for your services and ready. So, um, always leave the door open though, um, for them to, to, to come back. Um, uh, later on, it may not be the right time a year from now to be, Hey, got, you know, Sean, we're ready now. We weren't ready before. Um, you know, we're, we're ready to do some automation. So, um, that, you know, that's my advice. Um, you know, don't, don't be too pushy. Um, but, uh, at the same time, you know, it doesn't always hurt to once a year to kind of go, Hey guys, remember me, you know, just checking in, you know, want to see, uh, if you, if you're ready for, you know, some solutions at this point. Absolutely. No, I think that, uh, that, that all of that is, is very good advice. So th thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Sean. Kind of, kind of looking towards the future, right? So, so you had alluded to it earlier, the, the landscape between the last couple of years and what we're seeing coming up in, in 2023, especially in the automation space, be it, you know, automating things on factory floors or being automation groups is, is, probably going to be a little bit different for 2023 and and maybe beyond that uh can, can you can you tell us some of uh some of your thoughts as to uh, as to what that landscape is going to look like sure um and you know again this these are these are my opinions you know just based on my experience and uh um don't uh don't place any bets on them um you know, the last couple of years have been wildly different than anything in the, in the automation industry. I, I've seen ups, I've seen downs, but I don't think anybody's seen what we've seen the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of different factors. Um, obviously, you know, you know, COVID was one of them, um, just a disruption in everything, a supply chain disruption of how we work and the number of people working and all. But, um, you know, there's also, I think, you know, COVID also showed that, um, there was an underlying demographic problem too in, in the United States of you know the aging workforce and the baby boomers retiring. You may be retiring a little bit early, so it didn't. It wasn't because of COVID, but it was exacerbated by COVID, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, so you know the last couple of years have been amazing for everybody. Um, you know any any automation company worth their salt has had record years the last couple of years. Um, you know with a cooling off of the economy, um, with interest rates going up, with threats of recession, with inflation, um, you know, manufacturing companies tend to be conservative. They are, they are starting to retract a little bit. Um, they're, they, they had their heyday as well. You know, all the retail companies, the manufacturers, they couldn't produce enough goods. Um, they're starting to see things soften a bit, I think as well. Uh, and I think that, you know, 2023 is still going to be a, it's going to be certainly a net positive growth. It's still going to be a growth. And I think automation, you know, for the next foreseeable 10, 15, you know, maybe even 20 years is going to see a, a net growth. Um, but I, we're, we're not going to be seeing what we saw over the last couple of years. Um, so 
you know, I'm afraid that there are going to be some automation companies that, you know, scaled up maybe a little bit too much, a little too rapidly. Um, and, you know, they, they may be looking at having to tighten the belt a little bit. Um, I would say that my advice would be right now, be conservative, um, you know, go out and find those customers that are your good customers and, and try to figure out a, a plan, a roadmap for continuing to automate with them for the next couple of years. Um, you know, there'll always be new customers, but there are also going to be a lot of customers that were automated, were thinking about automation. And now they're kind of pausing a little bit, um, backing up and, and saying, well, we're, we're going to see how things, you know, uh, pan out. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to pan out, but, you know, there's been a lot of talk of layout, not talk, but actual layoffs, you know, uh, a lot of the tech industry is getting a lot of news, but, but even within the retail industry, you know, Amazon, uh, McDonald's announced 200,000 the other day. Um, there's some other you know, DoorDash. So there's a lot of those, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, entry to mid-level positions that are going to be, you know, people are going to be you know, out, out of work. Um, manufacturers who have for the last couple of years been crying that they cannot find any labor, which is true, may find themselves in a position where now they have quite a bit of labor. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how many of them will then say, well, now we don't need to automate because we've got labor. Um, in my opinion, a little short-sighted, it's going to come back to bite them in the end, but you know, you can't control what those manufacturers are doing. So um, definitely going to see some softening, I think in, in, in 2023. Um, and uh, companies just need to be, you know, prudent and, and conservative in the way they're moving forward. Um, the strong ones will all be fine. Um, but I, I think there, there probably will be some, you know, casualties as well, too. I'm curious, Sean, if I can follow up on that answer, the thought of labor shortages, right? And I, I think automation has traditionally been sold as well, we can uh, automate a process for which you don't have enough people that you can hire for, right? And so, I think to a certain degree that is correct in the current landscape, but we're also very short staffed on the like engineering and maintenance teams. And so I'm wondering where is that fine balance, right? Because last year, as you said, we had almost record sales and in certain industries we had record sales and now we just cannot find the right people to run, maintain and integrate that equipment. Do you think there's going to be maybe this, um, I, I want to say like an oscillation effect, right? But like an over damped system that will ultimately mm -hmm. somehow self-correct itself. And I don't know what the answer is, right? Like I'm just, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on like over automating and now you cannot find maybe the professionals that will kind of like run that equipment. Yeah. Um, we, we saw that even within the last couple of years. So, you know, because the, of the automation boom that happened, um, so many people were automating and a lot of companies that had automated for the first time. Um, you know, we, we, as, as much as we strive to build equipment, and I think everybody does to build equipment that doesn't break down or doesn't have problems or doesn't need debugging and all. We always told our customers that you have to take ownership of this machine. Um, this is not, you know, a rented piece of equipment that it breaks. You're going to call us every five minutes. You have to have that technical ability to do at least, you know, low level debugging of, you know, okay, machine stopped. Why? Let's look at the HMI. Oh, it says this sensor didn't make. Well, why? You looked at the machine. Oh, a part fell and jammed in behind the, the actuator. Um, you know, that, that's the type of things that we expect the customers to be able to do. Um, 
it's funny. I sat down though with a group of manufacturers and um, I, I told them that story and they said, well, that's great and all, but you need to assume that we have no clue what we're doing and that we won't be able to fix the machine. Um, so you need to, you need to build your equipment even, even easier to use than, um, than, than you already are. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I, I took that to heart and a few years ago, you know, we, I, I told them my controls engineers, I said, look, we've got these great machines and, uh, uh, you know, everything, everything works well, but, you know, our HMIs still look like they're from, you know, 1990. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, we, we, we need to make these machines easier to use. So we, we spent a lot of time, an internal project, completely revamping all of our HMIs to, and I, I showed everybody, I said, you know, this does not, oh, there we go. This does not have a user manual right? Whether it's an iPhone or an Android, a user manual does not exist for this, but you can hand it to a toddler and they can figure out how to use it, right? So I want our HMIs to be that easy to use. Same, slider switches, um, you know, graphical icons that don't need to be translated into foreign languages, um, you know, start, stop, pause, that sort of thing, all those standard icons and, 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 and show the user how to debug the machine step them through step by step have you done this okay have you cleared that yes yes okay good everything is green it's ready to go all right start and the machine starts so you know we were trying to help get away from the need to have some of those high level you know technicians um you still need them i mean if something mechanically breaks you, you gotta fix it right you need somebody who knows what they're doing but we don't expect everybody to be experts in the piece of equipment um, so, I mean, just to kind of a little bit long way to answer, but um, that will continue to be a problem. Um, you know, uh, the, the the skills gap of everybody always talks about the machinists. You know, we don't have any young machinists anymore. We we don't really have a whole lot of young technicians from an electrical and mechanical standpoint either. Um, which again, we could we could beat the same drum that everybody's been beating for the longest time of tech schools versus you know engineering schools, and I think we've we've all heard that argument. We all support it. Um, but you know, we should continue to, to repeat the message, um, because, you know, we do need to get more young people into those type of roles. Um, and it's a, it's a great, it, it's a great industry to be in and it's got a long runway. No, I, I would absolutely agree. I, I think it's also important to consider again, like due to the COVID impact, a lot of the, I want to say traditional software companies have transitioned to complete remote, right. And it's also a difficult how to say it, like perk to compete with because in manufacturing, I think we need solid programmers. And at the end of the day, you need to be there to do the actual mm -hmm. work, right? And so there's, yeah. I think it's going to have to come down to clever or better ways to incentivize people uh, to go into manufacturing versus, you know, consider considering yeah. employment in uh, some of those yeah. traditional software companies. But I, I, again, I don't have the answer. I, I'm, I'm always yeah. curious about thoughts, yeah. but uh, it's going to be interesting I to see. I think, um, you know, you mentioned the remote and, and you, yes, absolutely. You know, you've got to, at some point, you've got to be there to, uh, you know, download the programming machine and, and get it going. Or if you're doing integration, you got to be on site, of course. Um, you know, we, we, we embraced the remote aspect of, of COVID and, and really even after we started bringing everybody back, um, you know, we allowed people to, to work remotely, both mechanical and controls and electrical um, by, by putting in, you know, IT systems that allowed them to easily do this. So, you know, when a, when a PLC guy really needs to hammer out some code, you know, um, they want to they put on their headphones, they don't want to be bothered, they don't want somebody coming up to their desk and also, you know what, program from home. 
go home, spend two, three, four weeks, whatever it is, hammer out the code. And then you come into the, the office of the factory and download it and start doing your, you know, your debug. Um, and we just found that um, it really worked really, really well. Um, so I've, I've been a big fan of that, of that remote uh, work. Um, I know this wasn't your question, but I just, it kind of spurred a thought is that I, I saw the other day and the news popped up. Lots of companies now are saying like, nope, you know, mandatory three, four days back at, at the office. You know, Disney just announced four days at the office. And I, and I really think that's doing a, a disservice um, because we've, we've learned, we collectively as a, as a country have learned how to do things, you know, remotely. I mean, this conversation, even, you know, four or five years ago would have had to have taken place at a, at a, you know, a bar after a, a conference or a trade show or something like that. And now, you know, now through the, you know, the, the magic of, uh, you know, Zoom calls and, and, and LinkedIn and all that, we're able to share all this information, uh, you know, we're all over the country, you know, right now instantaneously. So companies, I think, need to embrace that. And, and progressive companies are starting to understand that, but there's still, still a lot of old school companies, our industry that, um, you know, like, nope, you've got to be in the office 40 hours a week, you know, no excuses. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't agree necessarily with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, th- I, think, I think, go ahead, Dave, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think that, that that's a good point, Sean. Every time I see one of these kind of large organizations demand a, a return to office, it is just, uh, I, I kind of look at the organization and I think that the people making the decisions are doing it for their comfort level, right? Maybe they're not comfortable having Teams calls or, or Zoom calls. Maybe they're not comfortable being able to go knock on the door of the person that they want to talk to or more realistically just open the door and destroy whatever they had planned to do for that day. And mm-hmm. because the the lack of comfort of the decision makers um, and th- their desire to kind of command their domain, if you will, they have decided everyone has to return to work. And honestly, I think a lot of top companies are going to lose a lot of their, their top engineers and their top minds because we've proven that many of us can work successfully from home. And sometimes many of us can work successfully from home in a fraction of the time uh, that it took to, to go attempt to go do it uh, during the work week, uh, Mm -hmm. during the work week in the office. Uh, So, so I think that, Yes. Yeah, um, I, I totally, totally, totally agree with you. It is, it's a lot of it is that comfort level. It's, it's maybe leaders, and, and there's nothing. I can't necessarily fault them for their their previous beliefs. They've always come to work. That that was the yep. you know, It was they were in the office all the time. They don't know how to not do that. Um, even even if they do embrace the tools, it just becomes this 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 mindset of just I've been doing this for twenty plus years, thirty plus years. I don't know anything how to do it differently. So they you know they do have to break out of their comfort zone and allow. And allow maybe the younger generation to teach them a different way of uh, of how to do it. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When, when COVID first hit, I, we sent everybody home. I and a couple of managers went into the office every day, though, just because we were just used to it. And we felt like we needed to be there. And then very quickly, we were like, why are we here? You know, yeah. I, this we could get this much work done from home. So, you know, it took us even, uh, you know, even us, uh, you know, middle, middle of the career guys, you know, it took us a while to figure that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it will be interesting to, to see where we go, uh, where, where we go with that as an industry and uh, perhaps broader th- than just our particular industry. I do want to do want to ask a question, kind of bring back talking about um, kind of the need of skills at the at the manufacturing facility. Right. So you guys, you guys would go deliver 
a uh, we'll just we'll just call it a work cell, right? You deliver a work mm -hmm. cell, and there would be some level of kind of assumption of, of they would be able to they, they the manufacturing facility on site would be able to go troubleshoot and figure this out, and they had some level of assumption of Sean, you're going to make this so error proof that it's never going to break, and if it breaks, maybe you can tell us a robot to go fix it, right? Um, yeah, I guess I guess I hear that a lot. Uh, I, I, I hear that a lot. And I'm not sure that we have really good conversations when it comes to whose responsibility is it? Uh, should should the systems integrators go sell service and support contracts to make sure that it always stays up and running? Should there be better training? And if there's better training and, and buildup of the technical skills on the manufacturing side, you know, whose responsibility uh, is that? Are, are you having the, those sort of conversations? And if you are, what do those sort of conversations look like? Yeah, we, we definitely are. Um, and um, it, was a, it, was, it was a lesson learned, you know, when you, when you first you first start out, you, you build the equipment, you, you put it down in place. And then, you know, they're calling you every five minutes and you're like, you guys should know this stuff. This is so simple. And we, and, but you realize like they have no, they have no training. They have no, no experience. They, they're not as experienced as we are. Um, and then, so over time you start talking to customers, as I mentioned before, it's like you, you explain in the beginning, you need to take ownership of this right now. What, what I would do to help the customer, we, you know, we always had our, our, our factory acceptance test where they would come in to, to run off the equipment. We would invite them to bring as many people as they want. And in fact, bring operators, bring the operator who's actually going to be running this machine. They will then, you know, be able to get used to the piece of equipment. They're not just seeing it for the first time when it hits the factory floor. Yeah. They're seeing it in its environment where it's still, you know, they still have a chance maybe to make a few little minor changes here and there at the end. Nothing major, of course, right? Hopefully that's already been taken care of design reviews. But um, it's amazing that sometimes an operator would go like, well, you know, hey, instead of the button being on the second screen that I have to flip over to, like, could you move it to the first screen? Like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Sure, yeah, easy. Programmer pops it over, right? So um, we'll also get them to, you know, run, send product, like real product, um, and run it in the environment and in the way that you're going to be doing it don't send us your perfect samples send us that dinged up box that you're going to be using you know in your factory floor so let's let's figure out how the products are really running um you know we would do training on our floor um and, and to to show them how to, how to how to use the machine and then when we do the you know the site acceptance test the sat um you know we would then reinforce that training um, the good thing is a lot of times you'd show up and you, you know, the operator is like, oh, you know, they knew the engineers, they knew the project manager from when they were at our facility. So it was a little bit of a, a reunion. You get back together again. Um, you know, we always tell them you got to name all the robots, got to give them a name. So when we show up, we'd ask what the names of the robots were and uh, got some, some creative ones over the years. Um, but, but, you know, at that point, then you have a really good idea of how much do they absorb? Um, while they were at, you know, the, the factory acceptance test, you kind of give them a reinforcement of training at that, at that uh, um, site acceptance test. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, always offered additional training, right? And we did, we offered support contracts as well. Um, you know, some, some people would take them because they knew that they didn't have the skill set necessarily to support it all the way. And, and some people would um, you know, I, we try to be, we try to be fair. You know, if you call up and you get a question, your stuff, we're going to you know, work through it. We're not going to charge you for it and all, but again, it's one of those, if you're calling every week, kind of with the same silly question or, or like, Hey, we went over this a few times, 
that's when you have to kind of sit down and, with a customer and have a hard conversation that, you know, you either need to ramp up your training or you need to pay for a support contract. I think that definitely makes sense, right? And I would uh, maybe add to the thought, a lot of it is also confidence, right? So a lot of the, a lot of times they, they don't feel like they have the skill set to maybe work on that equipment. And so right. the engineering teams or the operators, technicians, whatever, whatever it may be, I would say they're, they're scared to touch a new piece of machinery that's just been put on the production floor. And so they, if they know they have access to that phone call and you're going to show up uh, in the next five minutes, they, they also kind of steer in that direction. But no, it's, yeah. I think it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, again, like if integrators with, um, I want to say like less of a workforce on their side will be putting better systems in place to kind of like address and support that need. I, again, I don't have an yeah. answer, but I think they'll yeah. have to adapt better. And as you said, there's now like remote in technologies that are better. I think they're more cyber secure. There's a little bit less of, you know, just dropping in your VPN yeah. of the guest network, that sort of thing. So we're better equipped, I want to say. Yes, definitely. And I was actually going to, I was just going to mention the remote in technologies. And, and I, I always say dial in, which kind of, you know, dates dates us a little bit, but it's kind of like roll down your window, you know, it's one of those terms that's never going to go away. Um, but yeah, the remote in technologies, um, super, super important. And we got to the point where, you know, pretty much every machine, um, you know, we, we started off like, oh, if the machine goes out of state, we'll put one in, but if it's in state, we won't put one. And then we got to the point like, no, if we can even save a three hour drive, you know, within the same state, it, it's worth, you know, yeah. putting that in. Um, interesting that you mentioned the cybersecurity though. It, it's still a struggle with IT, large IT organizations at large customers. Um, as soon as you start mentioning anything about remote, they're like, nope, because that's the easy answer, right? Is no. And you know, I've had I've had discussions with some of those IT groups like, look, this is you know military grade encryption with you know double key. And I said, this is more this is more secure than your Windows network is, but you won't let it on, you know, you won't let it on your network. Um, so I think it's we have to educate the the IT groups as to um, uh, as to what these products are. In fact, we even did a little white paper to give to those IT groups explaining the advantages and, and, and how secure it really was um, because, you know, it, it was just an uphill battle for the longest time with these IT groups. I've been part of some of those conversations, so I, I feel the yeah, pain. Yeah, sure you have. <laughs> but, but, but speaking of different technologies, Sean, I, I'm curious also, you know, your outlook on maybe various, how to say it, technologies that we see in our space. I think, you know, for the longest time, we've been super excited about AI. We've seen a, a new chat messaging, whatever app that came out. Like, what are your thoughts on maybe the landscape of various tech in manufacturing? So like AI, maybe machine vision, robotics, traditional integration. Mm. Like, what are your thoughts on how they're going to be like more funded, gain more interest, less interest? Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm glad you picked a nice small subject to uh, to talk about here. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of facets to that. So... Um, I'll try to pick some of them off, you know, um, you know, that the AI, I mean, for, I'll be honest with you, for the longest time, everybody was using AI, you know, as a buzzword. And, and my joke to other people is, you know, a, AI is not just a bunch of if then statements, which I think some people believe that, that it is, um, you know, the chat GPT, it's really interesting. It's, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of momentum. There's a lot of excitement for it. Um, you know, I'm not sure it's as polished and ready to go as a, some other people do. Um, we got a lot of work to do. You know, I, like everybody else, you know, being a programmer, I fed it some things. Hey, write me a program that does this. And you know, what I found is it 
it does a decent job at giving you kind of base logic, but don't trust it to get syntax right um, because it flat out has gotten syntax completely wrong. And you know, I said write this program in multiple languages, and it, it didn't get any of them correct. But if you get if you get stuck and you don't know, how, you get like kind of writer's block or coder's block. It's an interesting tool to say, hey, how do I do this? It may give you a pseudo code that you can then adapt. So that it's useful in that way, absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think image processing, you know, um, from like the Dolly side, the the uh, art, the automatic art generation. Um, my my son's going to school for for graphic design, and that is just every class he's taking is talking about how to use it and how to almost combat it and prevent it from taking away from the graphic designers. Um, it's a it's a big deal because that that to me is even more amazing than the the, the chat side of things. Um, so if you take some of that vision, though, there's some companies out there. You know, Cognex years ago bought a, a company called Viddy that was doing you know artificial intelligence and deep learning and all. I think that's going to continue. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of advances in vision. Um, hopefully, price of vision is going to start coming down. Ease of use of vision. You know, if you can. If you could just teach it, you know, good, 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 bad, 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 and then let it go, um, you know, that's going to be so much better than, you know, working in you know, spreadsheets or, or, or even a GUI interface, right? Um, so I, I think, you know, AI is definitely going to continue in, in, that, in that vision, you know, side. Um, robotics, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, do we, do we really want... You know, ro robots are dangerous things. And, and I already, you know, as anybody who knows me on LinkedIn, you know, will we'll tell you, you know, I, I already see so many cells that are just inherently dangerous and having that a risk assessment. Um, if we start letting artificial intelligence, you know, move the robots and all, are, are we, if we aren't building in some of that safety, are we, are we opening ourselves up to more potential? And I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm not worried about them turning into, you know, Terminator and killing people. It's just, you know, is it, is it going to move when we didn't explicitly tell it to move, right? Mm -hmm. Is it going to make an assumption that, you know, well, the gateway over there is open, but I'm over here. So I'll, I'll go ahead and move into the gate over there. No, it's don't move if the gate is open. So we've, we've got to be careful in that. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of from that, you know, the AI side of, of things. I think how, that, you know, some of these technologies might progress. It's, yeah, that's I know you had a couple other topics. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna comment on on the robotics point, and I remember um, maybe five or six years ago reading an article. And again, I, I guess my concern is also on the PR side, right? So there was an incident that happened. I forgot which. Uh, it was an automotive plant where someone was hmm. injured by a robot, and yeah. obviously, as uh, I, I want to say, journalists do. It was taken out of context and it, the title, and I remember this, right? Because I, at the time it was rolling Ooh, out yeah. some pilotizing cells yeah. and it said something along the, the lines of the AI <laughs> is taking over robots at this factory and it is, uh, you know, it, it is injuring people yeah. and workers and it's no longer safe. And I think it's, it's right. almost one of those, it, it's not necessarily a prisoner's dilemma, but it's if one company does something with AI and it doesn't go well, <laughs> that instance right just because maybe it was rushed right maybe it was not even intentional um and that creates a very bad public image of what mm -hmm. ai is in manufacturing and then prevents anyone that has a really good intention and also really good technology to doing anything i i'm really curious again i'm very curious to see how it plays out i think uh, mm -hmm. in many instances you want to be the first mover but like i said 
it's also making sure that it's ready for the environment. And I completely agree with you to the point that AI is is a very advanced field. I think people sometimes joke about it being like an if-else statement, but I think if you talk to the real people who are doing AI, it, it is incredible, mm -hmm. right? And, again, oh yeah, yeah. There's maybe maybe some dubious applications or mentions of AI in, in some companies in manufacturing, but I, I think you should not have any illusion around it being uh, coming in uh, with a lot of potential. Oh. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are, we already have examples of it being in, yes. and and you know, and, and I totally agree. Yes, there's there's some amazing things being done with it. Um, kind of going back to what we talked about with the, you know the PR is though I I was just seeing a lot of people saying you know we use AI enabled robots and the robot literally is is picking apart from here to here, right? I'm like, what's AI about that? It, there's no AI in that. It's just a buzzword at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you know you got to be careful with, with how you do it. And, and I do remember that I want to say it was a Poland, maybe, but um, the, the robot, and I remember reading, a robot attacks you know, a human. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, didn't attack a human. The, the human bypassed the safety guarding or, or something like that, right? So, um, yeah. I have we, to explain to my friends, it's XYZ coordinates. It literally just goes to where you tell it to go. And if you're going to be in its way, yeah. it doesn't even know. Right? But and you, No, no. And it goes to the same place every single time. Right. It's, you know, we used, we used to say like, oh, you're cutting it kind of close to that guarding. I'm like, doesn't matter. It, it's not going to hit the guarding because it's going to go to the exact <laughs> same place every single time. Right. Unless you go around and move the guarding or you monkey around with the coordinates. So. No, hey. I, I, I love this. I guess I, I'm excited as I tell everyone uh, to, to see what AI brings into our industry. Um, I, I still think that we are a number of years before we're going to have a, a chatbot for uh, industrial robots, but but I, I'm excited to, to see what it brings. I also think that there are lots of very basic uh, issues that we need to solve as an industry before artificial intelligence is going to uh, is going to come save us. But but I I am excited for the day that we get there. Uh, before mm -hmm. we move on, there are some people uh, we need to thank. Uh, so this episode and this theme is sponsored by Profit by Design, which is us profit by design is designed to answer the questions how can i run more efficiently how can we become profitable or more profitable and how can i retain my good employees it's a three-day process in which we work with your employees to understand the expensive problems that happen on the floor and then create solutions that are net profitable in the first 12 months Typical results are 20 to 100x return on investment. We've got a stack of case studies from prior projects in our careers that are net a million dollars profit or more. If you're looking to run more profitably and figure out how to retain your employees, check us out at profitbydesign.io, profit, the letter X, design.io, or drop me a message. Uh, looking forward to talking to everyone about that soon. Uh, jumping back in, Sean. We've seen a lot of investment, uh, right? So, so we, we have seen a lot of investment over especially the last two or three years in automation or manufacturing-based startups. Um, and, and you kind of alluded to in the beginning, you think, uh, you think some of that investment is going to go away. Right. Uh, perhaps you alluded to, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe if you got some seed or a Series A, you're not sure if if we're going to as easily give out uh, Series Bs and Cs and Ds uh, as that. We've also seen a bunch of kind of new and, and innovative style offerings, uh, machines as a service or a robots as a service. What are your thoughts on what the next you know twelve to eighteen months of kind of any and all of those style services are going to look like? Mm -hmm. 
Right. So um, again, you know, some of this just comes from my experience. Some of it comes from listening to, you know, the guys out who are, you know, the VCs who are giving you know, the money away. Um, I should say giving the money away. That's, that's the wrong thing to say. They're, they are providing liquidity. Um, you know, I, I, I do believe, and I think the general consensus is that, you know, you might still get some seed rounds. You might get some angel investors on some of this, but um, unless companies are really showing a path to profitability, uh, those later rounds, those BCD rounds are going to be a lot harder to get, mm-hmm. um, especially in, you know, an industry that is seeing some slowdown. Um, again, you know, uh, you could, you could, you could come up with an idea and probably get a couple million dollars a couple years ago. Anybody probably could really, it's gonna be a lot harder now. Um, and these companies who got it over the last few years um, are really in a position where they need to show um, that those paths of growth, those paths of profitability, um, or they're, they're not going to get, you know, those, those, those additional rounds. Um, so um, there was a lot in our industry uh, that came out um, over the last couple of years. Um, you know, somebody in today, I can't remember what somebody posted on, you know, the, um, it was like the RIP of, of companies that died in 2020, the startups that died, the robotic and, and automation companies that died. And I think there was, you know, five or six of them. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my thought was there's gonna be more than five or six probably this year, um, you know, um, which is not always a bad thing because sometimes the technology, it's a good start. Um, somebody else might pick it up and can continue it, you know, pick up pieces and kind of, you know, revamp it, come up with a new way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not all's lost, but it, it's, it, there's going to be casualties, you know, again, this year. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's machines as a service, robots as a service. Um, this is one that I've, I've, I've asked, people to explain to me the math behind this and multiple times it's been explained. And I, and I still believe that unless you have a standard offering that you can, you know, just pump out, put in place, maybe with, you know, slight customization to, you know, an end of our tool or, or a conveyor or something like, you know, something minor that you can tweak, even more of an engineer to order, you know, type type scenario. Um, those machine as a service companies, I think, could be um, profitable, could do uh, do well, um, because you're also going to be able to take it back, right? Yeah. Um, because there will be customers that say, you know, we don't want to do this after anymore. Or they, we lost the yeah. contract. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're focusing, we're changing our product dramatically, and this doesn't work anymore. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the machines as a service companies said, well, you know, our hope is they continue to have them cheap for, you know, 10 years. And I said, well, hope's not a strategy, though. You know, you have to plan on worst case, them getting rid of it at the end of the contract. Now, what do you do? You can't, if it's a custom machine, you're not going to reuse most of this stuff. You know, I mean, maybe a robot, maybe a PLC, maybe an HMI, but uh, probably 80, 90% of it's not going to be reusable. So you need to have a standard product that you can bring back, dust off, polish up, make a few changes to, and then put back out into the environment. Um, So again, I think it's another, just like, everything in every industry, there are buzzwords every year. And in the last couple of years, the robots as a service and machines as a service has become a bit of a buzzword. Um, there will be successes, I think, you know, um, and I, I don't want to, I don't like naming names, you know, but there will be some successes out there. And there's quite honestly, within the next couple of years, I think there's going to be a lot less of them out there as well. Yeah. I'm curious on that side, you know, how, again, how it's going to play out because I, I think I've seen, a lot of those, uh, I want to say, more business models 
uh, presented. I quite honestly, I guess in my opinion, it's more of like an accounting play. And I think it, it offers an advantage if you're just doing like an R&D or proof of concept project. But as you said, once the equipment is deployed, I'm not sure in what state it comes back to you if it is coming back a bit prematurely than your expected, you know, timeline yep. for that equipment. So yep. I'm curious to see again, like how it's going to play out. I think it's fairly new. Uh, so we'll just yep. have to wait and, and see. I, I think, I think, you know, the reason it, 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 it took off recently was of course, you know, software as a service mm-hmm. has been something that's been around for a while, you know, in the venture capital world. And it's a perfect example. You, you, you build it once, you sell it, you get a recurring you know, income stream. And once you get them hooked on that, using that software, typically companies are just going to keep paying for it. Even if they stop using it, they'll forget that they have a subscription. And they'll just keep paying um, for it until, until the accountant comes in and says, do we use the software anymore? Um, you know, I think the VC community saw robots as a service and machines as a service as the same thing as software as a service. They're like, oh, it's the same model. It's the same concept. Let's go ahead and do, you know, let's go ahead and do that. Software as a service works. Why wouldn't this work? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think you're going to be seeing a lot of new machine and, and robot as a service companies because that money won't be as freely flowing to them. Mm-hmm. Right. The ones who are already out there, you know, hopefully they can figure out a way to, you know, to be successful and they'll be successful. But, you know, I don't, I don't see a lot of new ones coming out. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Sean, if I can ask you maybe to share, uh, if you have some ideas that you can share with the audience of interesting, maybe opportunities in, in manufacturing for 2023, do you have any thoughts of, you know, some areas, uh, if, if someone, let's say, wants to innovate on the hardware or software side, what are some of, of your thoughts uh, there? Cool. Um, yeah, so so something I talked about recently, and I posted an article on it that caused a, quite a bit of, I knew it was going to cause a stir, but it caused quite a bit of stir on LinkedIn was, uh, you know, is it time to move past ladder logic, right? Um, I, I, I know enough ladder logic to be dangerous. I am not an you know, expert uh, like you are, Vlad, you know. Um, it's an, it, it, you know, it's been around for forever. It's a, it's a strong, stable platform in a language. But it's what we're seeing now is more, you know, very successful implementations of what we're going to, I'm going to call low code. I might hate the term no code because everything has code in it. Um, But, you know, for example, you know, UR was one of the pioneers that came out with a very simple, easy to program robot. It was, it was great. It was text-based, but it was kind of graphical in nature, drag and drop, you know, indented. It it, it really did a, a, they did a great job at, at creating a platform that made it really easy for non-technical people even to, you know, to program robots. Um, and, and since then there have been other people, you know, Fanic has got one I and mean, pretty much all the robot guys have, have come out one. Ebsen's got one as well. Um, it, is it, I think it's time to maybe start taking that, that thought process at, and applying it to the entire machine control. Um, you know, there certainly there are high-end systems that, you know, you're not going to replace Lionel. It's, it's just, it's too pervasive. It's too, uh, it's too powerful. Um, but, you know, if you look at the 80-20 rule, you know, a lot, 80% of the automation processes out there are nothing more than, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, 25, 30 IO points, you know, with some air cylinders or maybe a conveyor and a servo motor and a robot picking placing into a ultrasonic welder or dispensing or it's, it's, it's pretty simple, you know, processes. And those are the processes that, a lot of manufacturers think think um, they can do themselves. Um, they don't need an integrator for because it this is simple. And 
they usually do fairly well on the mechanical side and even on the electrical design side, they do okay. And then they fall apart when it comes to programming um, because they don't know PLCs and they don't, they have to go hire a controls engineer or an integration group to come in and do it. Um, and, and those guys are rightfully so, rightfully so expensive. Um, you know, if you had a tool that even the mechanical guy who designed, um, you know, mechanical, I should say mechanical person who designed this, um, you know, cell to be able to go in and say, okay, you know, if this sensor is on, then do this. And then, you know, while this is happening, if you had a, a language that worked that way, I think it would really open up uh, the ad adoption of automation more. Um, you know, there's a lot of headwinds against it. Um, there's a lot of people who will say slide logic or die, you know, we're not, we're not changing from it. Um, but you know, I think it's, if, if the robot industry can do it, then why can't the machine control industry do it? I, I really don't see that there's a reason why you can't. And again, like I said, it's not going to replace everything, but I, I do think it's got a place. Yeah. I would agree with that entirely. And again, we've seen a similar example. You've mentioned Cognix a little bit earlier, right? They had the spreadsheet designer and now it's become like easy builder. So I think it also at the end of the day, right? I like the way I'm, I'm less familiar with UR, but I'm more familiar with the Cognix model, right? Where you can start mm -hmm. an easy builder and you can mm -hmm. always look underneath and go and apply that logic in, uh, in spreadsheets. And I think, you know, people may, how to say it, push back on how to say it, like replacing or changing up ladder logic because they assume that your intent is to completely rip that out and put something that they're not used to in, right? But in reality, mm -hmm. I think the transition is going to yeah. be slow and, and steady, I want to say, where you want to open up or give the opportunity to people to use either one. And I would also argue, yeah. you know, like on the application side, I think that we always fall into the, like use the right tool for the job. I think that's an obvious statement, but I think in many cases, <laughs> you can also use either tool and accomplish the same job, right? So let's say if I'm more comfortable sure. doing it in, with one tool, you're more comfortable in another, then it shouldn't be like, well, no, Vlad, like you can't do this. We're going to standardize only on this. Because I, I think at the end of the day, uh, there's going to come a, a time where the people you're looking to hire are going to come in with a certain background and they're just going to say, well, no, then if I'm going to have to invest you know, a, a massive amount of time and a learning curve that I might as well just take a job somewhere else, as we discussed, like in the software industry, yeah. because they know <laughs> Python, they know C++, they know Java. And so they're just going to yeah. say like, no, well, we're not going to deal with this. But that that's, again, yeah. my opinion. So. No, I, and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, one of the, one of the large pushbacks that we get when you, when you talk about, you know, going away from a ladder logic is like, oh, but the text on the floor, no ladder logic, and they've got to be able to, to understand it. And I said, well, no, nobody's born knowing ladder logic, just like they're not born knowing Python. They, they are taught. So then the backup argument is, well, yeah, but it's just like electrical diagrams, you know, so it, it's the relay logic type stuff. And they're like, well, but I took that in college and I still didn't understand PLC. I still had to learn PLC code. Just like I was taught, you know, back, I actually, I took Fortran and, and the funny thing is I wanted to take C and they're like, no, C is for electrical engineers, Fortran is for mechanical. And I was like, this is silly. The next semester they got rid of Fortran and everybody took C. So, you know, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, they're perfectly good languages. Um, and, and you can teach anybody, any of those languages. Um, now, you know, taking a step back from that, making it more quote, low code, you know, easier to use, um, 
I, I took an example, you know, bladder logic, and I wrote some pseudo graphical code kind of flow chart, you know, and, and I showed it to my, my 14 year old daughter who is, is not technical. And I said, okay, you know, she's done some Lego programming and stuff like that. But, you know, I said, all right, this ladder logic, what does this do? She's like, I have no idea what that is. And I said, okay, what does this, you know, code over here do? And she's like, well, it looks like if this turns on, then that happens and you know, waits for this long, whatever. I'm like, okay, she was zero training could figure out, you know, what this program did versus this other kind of cryptic language with these symbols that you get, need to know what they do. And um, so, yeah, I, I think um, like any innovation and any disruption, uh, it, it's a disruption. It, it, people don't want to change. They're comfortable with what they are, what they are currently doing. Um, but I think it's, it's time um, that there is a disruption in the, you know, the machine control industry. And, you know, interesting kind of side thought uh, to even like this conversation, and I know this is possible in other languages, uh, you know what I mean? Like there could be a tool that allows you to open the same logic in both editors, right? Like, so if you're comfortable with ladder logic, open it in ladder logic and edit it your way. And obviously I understand that there's nuances to that and maybe the very complex logic is going to be difficult to kind of massage in both ways. But at the end of the day, they're both, translated uh into c and then into binary mm -hmm. uh, to my knowledge mm -hmm. so there, there must be a balance where you can open it in both visual editors because at the end of the day even ladder logic is just a, a visual layer on top of what your microprocessor sure. or microcontroller does so yep uh, yep but uh dave w what are your thoughts around this I, I think that we have heard uh, kind of a number of good reasons uh, throughout the last, I don't know, 90 ish shows as to why probably ladder logic will outlast all of us on this conversation, um, probably our lifetimes, but certainly our time, uh, time within the industry. So it, it will be around uh, for, for longer than, than all of we will. But I think it's important for us to look at how can we make the, the programming in our industry more accessible because we, we have a huge need of trained engineers and people that can code to come into our industry. And by saying, hey, you have to understand ladder logic, it makes it amazingly difficult. There is a huge barrier of entry, a huge step that someone must take and go to commit to at least understand, if not know fairly well, uh, a a programming language that will only be useful in this industry and then they potentially leave this industry and it is it, it is completely worth it uh, completely worthless uh for, for the rest of everything uh but but i think all of those are good points i, I would like to to go back to kind of the, the low code conversation and comment that you're bringing up sean uh, i guess i have seen a number of low code options um and when i look at low code options i always think to myself hey these are interesting options especially if i've got you know engineers or i've got maintenance techs or i've got someone who generally knows um what 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 they need in order to be able to kind of go output an end product well and to do it quicker uh, but I guess I kind of perceptively see a lot of low end quote unquote no code uh, solutions kind of going and saying, hey, manufacturers, you guys can go kind of build this up all internally um, with your already overworked engineers who don't really have time to do it. But but they, they can go find time to do this. Um, where do you sure. see low to, to specifically low code? Where, where do you see low code kind of within the industry and where do you think? <laughs> Uh, it, it fits best. So, um, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I've always made that that same argument is like, oh, you know, manufacturers like, oh, we're going to automate internally, you know, and I said, mm-hmm. okay, so you're a manufacturing engineer and you are paid to, you know, make sure the manufacturing lines run well, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when do you have time to build an automation machine? So you're working two jobs, basically, you know, um, and, and you're going to do neither one of them great because you're they're both are going to suffer. Um, you know, let the experts take care of it. So, um, you know, I think it would be uh, the 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 OEMs and the integrators, the machine builders would probably need to adopt this for simple cells, small little work cells, you know, CNC loading type cell, think, you know, simple, somewhat standardized products to get them in the hands of the manufacturers who then, you know, can can go in and if they do need to change the code or or for whatever reason or make a modification because their part changed or some, you know, some environment changed. Um, they could very easily do that. Um, then it becomes a little bit more acceptable. Like, ooh, we like that 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 low code solution that you provide mm-hmm. to us. Provided again for the next cell, right? Yep. I think I think it'll start spreading that way. Um, so it's got to be kind of a, a grassroots. There will be you know innovative companies that you know they do have. We've worked with several companies that have the in house automation groups. That's you know mm-hmm. they're not manufacturing engineers. They're automation guys who build equipment internally. And there's some great you know there's some great uh, people out there doing that. Those are the companies I think that will uh, will adopt it. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be enterprise level. Well, it'll be a mixture. Let me back this up. It'll be a mixture of, I'm going to call it the mom and pop manufacturers mm-hmm. who have just a couple sporadic pieces of automation and enterprise level where mm-hmm. they're like, okay, you know, yes, I know our standard has always been, you know, Allen Bradley or Siemens or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but for cells under a certain size or under a certain IO count or whatever it is, we're going to go with this, you know, XYZ low code uh, uh, platform because then you can do standardization um, across multiple plants, across the mm-hmm. entire organization. Um, you can build in some standards of how do you code these low code, you know, applications. So yeah. um, it'll be a mixture, like any other, uh, you know, technology. I think it'd be a mixture of coming from the OEM side and the manufacturing side, and then there'll be this, you know, merger, and you know, it'll kind of figure itself out. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing is going to be getting people to go back and change their standards that were written, you know, in 1983 that, mm-hmm. you know, that have not been changed. I mean, we've, we've seen specs that literally spec out PLCs that have been obsolete for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, you guys yeah. haven't changed this in a while, have you? <laughs> so. Absolutely. Um, I, I would yeah. agree with that. I, I, I guess in my opinion, that's where I see the, the biggest opportunity lying as well. I have seen a couple of especially enterprise organizations try to kind of go it their own under the guise of we're, we're going to go save money. And it always mm-hmm. took four or five times as long. And they always had, had to pull resources off um, in order to and so th- they're not doing their job. And, uh, and when I look at the outcome of it, they're very excited, right? So it's this application, they only spent like six months uh, figuring it out, they only spent like, I don't know, $600,000 on it. And at the end of the day, they think they're going to save $500,000 a year across four facilities. And I look at it, and I'm like, this is really bad guys, right? Like, well, like I, I understand that everyone tried really hard, but you're losing probably about $4 million of opportunity uh, right. because you couldn't find it within your budget to go pay people whose, whose jobs it is every day to go find the, the efficiencies uh, within, within some of these facilities. So I, it will absolutely be interesting to see where we go 
as we uh, as as we continue down as we continue down this path. Uh, but but no, th- th- this has been an amazing uh, conversation. Uh, typically, th- this is where I ask you to predict the future, Sean. But I feel like we've been demanding you predict the future for the last I don't know thirty to, to sixty five minutes. Um, do, are there any other future predictions that you would like to throw in here now that that we haven't already asked you about? <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, you know, when it comes to, uh, well, let's see here. The Gators are not going to win the national championship next year. I can pretty much pretty guarantee solid. that. Um, you know, uh, George has got a good contention to win it again. I think, um, uh-huh. you know, in our, in our industry though, um, yep. you know, I mean, just overall, um, there's going to be uh, kind of, I'm repeating a little bit what I've said, but you know, the overall mm-hmm. theme I think is there's going to be some, a little bit of more headwinds uh, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things are not going to be quite as simple and gangbusters as they were the last couple of years. Um, there will be exceptions. There's, there's companies out there that I'm sure are going to have record year in, in, in 23, but um, overall as an industry, I think we just need to, you know, be cognizant of, of what's going to uh, um of what's going to be happening in, you know, in the political, economic, you know, geopolitical, you know, uh, world right now. Um, and, um, you know, don't, don't, don't overspend, you know, watch your budgets, um, you know, be, be around for 2024. So, and who knows, you know, things turn around at the end of 23, which they probably will, if I had to guess, um, you know, 24 could be a, a banner year again. Right. Yep. So, um, you know, this is just one that we gotta, we gotta get through this one. Um, Thank goodness we don't have, you know, COVID to deal with this year. So it won't be as bad as, uh, you know, 2020 and 2021. I, I absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. Uh, so, so um, I like to, to joke, I guess this originally started as, as almost a half joke of a book recommendation where I call it the, the hashtag not sponsored audible recommendation, where I ask people for audiobook recommendations and Vlad goes and immediately downloads them. I will say Vlad has downloaded something like 160 book recommendations and we have far outpaced his ability and his time to, uh, to listen to them, at least as per the last time he was going on vacation. Um, and, and he had many, many book recommendations to listen to, but, but do you have a book recommendation? recommendation or, or two perhaps uh for us sean yeah sure um you know actually i i, I posted I, I actually asked the same question recently on linkedin because i kind of got to a point I, I finished a couple books and i was like hey what is everybody reading and i said don't give me your 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 business books because I've, I've read so many of those i want i want something else and um uh, i took a couple of the recommendations and i've got them now and one of them is called uh stiff uh it's by mary roach it's the subtitle is uh, i think it's called the, the the hidden world of the human cadaver and it's basically about you know what happens to bodies once you die. It's 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 fascinating. It's, it's very humorous as well too. It uh, you know talk, talks about donating your body to science and crash test dummies and things like that. It's it's a really you got to have a unique sense of humor, but um, it's a really really good book. Um, the other one I'm reading too. I usually have you know two or three going at any given time. It's it's called The Drunkard's Walk. Uh, it's how randomness is uh, how affects our lives and how it's built in, how randomness is built into our lives. So it, 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 it kind of satisfies my, my mathematical nerdy side by talking about some math behind randomness. But then it also talks about, you know, how it just affects your, your relationship with your, your loved ones and, and work and, and just how, how things happen in the world. And all. So those are, those are two, uh, two ones that I'm reading right now that are, that are pretty interesting. 
interesting and unique. Absolutely, the two words that uh, that come to top of mind as you're as you're describing those. Uh, I, I appreciate it. We always appreciate non uh, business specific related books mm-hmm. um, because I don't know. Vlad needs something to listen to on uh, you know in that twelve minutes outside of uh, of when he stops working before he goes to bed at night. So so thank thank you very much uh, for, for that, Sean. Uh, so so we love career <clears throat> advice, right? Uh, and and you have had kind of a long a little bit twisting uh, career where, where you've done a whole bunch of things and you are getting ready to, to figure out what uh, what the next phase of the career looks like. Uh, so with that said, what is maybe some of the best career advice you have for, for maybe mid-career people, uh, maybe people looking to uh, to go start a business or take over part of a business? Um, yeah. Um, be fearless. You know, um, it's a tough thing to do. Um, and, and trust there's, there's times that I've sat there and like, I, I'm not sure I can do this, you know? So, um, you, you've got to take a chance. Um, you've got to, if you don't take that chance, you never know what'll happen. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? There's a lot of cliches, but, um, you know, don't be afraid to analyze the situation and then just say, I don't have all the data. Cause we, we as technical people and engineers, a lot of times you know, we want all the variables filled out before we do anything. And yep. I've, I've learned over the years, especially in business, you can't do that because it's not just all about the math and the science. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's about people. How, you know, yep. you don't know what this customer's feeling. You don't know what their emotional state is. And, and, and again, you know, us engineers don't deal well with emotional, you know, states anyway. So, you know, how do we, you got to take a guess. Sometimes you got to be bold. You got to, there's been times before where I've like, you know what, I'm putting my foot down with this customer on this, on this, and it it may shoot us in the foot. And then it's turned out that they respected the fact that we held our line and like they agreed to, to, you know, what we were asking. So um, don't be afraid to fail either. Um, I, I have always taught all of my engineers, you know, sometimes we bring in people from other companies and they were always in a culture of, if you ask for help, that's seen as a sign of weakness. Um, we were the exact opposite. We were, if you if you struggle on a problem for too long and spinning your wheels and you're not asking for help, that's that's a problem, right? Because the guy right next to you may have your the answer and he could just help you out. And boom, now you're off to the races. So um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to fail. We're not all going to be perfect because otherwise you get the analysis paralysis and you just, you never make a decision. And I always say not making decision is making a decision. It's, but you're not going to grow. Right. So, uh, you know, be bold, try new things. You're going to screw up. It's okay. Um, just try not to screw up on the same thing, you know, more than once. John, let Absolutely. me, if I can do a follow-up, Dave, sorry to yeah, please. maybe get us into a second question on that. I think like Sean is very, well positioned to answer this question that I have that I'm very curious about. So Sean, how do you evaluate maybe when you have a lot of opportunities that come your way, how do you evaluate which ones to pursue? Right. And and again, maybe I'll uh, piggyback of my own personal experience, but there's a lot of things you could be doing with your time. How do you select the right ones? Right. Yeah. Um, I, unfortunately I think that just comes with experience and, and, and learning from your mistakes. Um, you know, er, early on in R&D's career, you know, we took on 
you know, pretty much any job that would, you know, come, come, come towards us. It's, we did, we did things that we had no business doing, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people were like, Hey, have you ever done this before? Like, no, but we'll figure it out. Right. And we you know, barely made any money, you know, on, on, on this project. And, and then we was like, okay, so we're not doing that again. Right. Um, so over time, then now you're presented with these things when you have the luxury of being a little bit larger company too, you can then start to pick and choose what you're good at. Right. And you can just say, look, I'm sorry. We're, you know, we don't do food and beverage, for example, you know, but I can put you in touch with a company that will, because your next project may not be food and beverage. It may be something that, that we could help you with. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you, you don't fall in that trap of saying yes to everything. Um, Cause you can't get yourself in trouble. Right. And I've, I've seen some companies, quite frankly, just go bankrupt because they took on projects that, you know, when you look at them, you're like, why did they take on that project? It doesn't fit their wheelhouse. It's, it's, you know, it just doesn't, it, they don't have the expertise in it. Um, you know, it, 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 you've got to be, you got to be bold, but at the same time, you do have to know your limitations. Right. So um, I wish there was a magic bullet for figuring out, you know, what, what those best projects are. But um, unfortunately, I think you got to take your lump sometimes on to learn which ones you are good at, which ones you aren't good at. I appreciate that. No, no, but very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, all really great advice uh, uh, for, for Vlad, for myself, and for probably more than a few people who needed to hear that at the moment. So, so thank you for that, Sean. And then the last question that we like to ask is, uh, you know, uh, how can how can our listeners help you? Um, I, I know that you're you're in kind of a bit of a transition phase. Typically, this is where I would ask, you know, are you guys looking for customers? Are you looking to hire? What does that look like? So, so I, I'm going to open this up. Uh, maybe make it a little bit broader, Sean. Is who do you want to connect with? Uh, you know, how can our listeners help mm-hmm. you? Um, you know, I I enjoy talking about this industry and and it's it's a passion of mine. It's all I've ever known. People ask me like, oh, you're going to do something else? I'm like. I don't know if I know how to do anything else. I've really done this my entire life. So um, I, I enjoy, you know, giving advice to people who are up and coming and even in large companies. Um, you know, I would just say that if, you know, if, if, if you are a company or you know of a company that, you know, um, might want just um, maybe even do it well, you just want a second opinion, a, new, a fresh set of eyes, just, just a, a different take on, how you've done things. Um, you know, I, I brought in a business advisor at one point to me, a, a pair of business advisors, um, just because I wanted somebody to challenge me. You know, I'm like, I, I, I've always done things this way. I want somebody to come in and say, Hey, why are you doing it this way? Maybe you should be doing it in a different, you know, different type of, of, of manner. Um, you know, so, um, you know, whether it be a manufacturer, whether it be, uh, you know, a robot manufacturer or, or, or a, air cylinder or, or um, you know, a venture capital or a private equity firm or whatever it happens to be, as long as it's in that automation industrial space, um, you know, if you, if you want a second opinion, you want some advice, you want unsolicited opinions, you know, reach out to me and, and let's talk and let's, uh, you know, let's see. Everybody who knows me knows I'm not, I'm not short of opinions. That's for sure. I, I love it. Thank you, Sean. Uh, th- th- this has been amazing. And thank you, everyone, for, for coming to uh, to hang out w- with all of us. Um, we will absolutely have to have Sean back on at some point in the future after he has uh, 
figured out which direction he is going and uh, can share a little bit more of that. Uh, I will say, if you guys have made it all all the way to the end, please go ahead and hit that like button. Uh, please go ahead, if you're listening in podcast form, to, to rate us five stars and all those places you can rate us five stars and hit the follow. It helps. We will be in your podcast earbuds every Thursday at some point. If you guys are watching us live, again, thank you very much. Uh, feel free to subscribe to Solus PLC. Hit the like button on the LinkedIn Live. Follow us on manufacturing hub and if you guys want to be uh notified of all of the upcoming shows and everything we've got going on please check out manufacturinghub.live which is the home to all of this uh until next wednesday we'll see everyone soon thank you bye-bye thank you so much thank you sean appreciate it